Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 34 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode 34 of Inside Quizzing, we are going to be wrapping up our chapter review, uh, covering the last couple of chapters in John, chapters 20 and 21. We're going to be talking about the upcoming quiz meet that is only, well, it's less than two weeks away at this point. It's going to be in Madras, Oregon. So we're going to be talking about all sorts of things that are happening within that meet. It's a very special meet for a lot of different reasons. Uh, not least of which it's been a long time since we've seen everybody since uh, because our previous meet was canceled uh, due to snowpocalypse. But a lot of other things are happening at that meet. So we want to recognize some of those things. And we talk a little bit about uh, what is coming up with Great West in terms of uh, practicing and the schedules behind that and so forth. Talk a little bit about the next season, just sort of a teaser of the next season, the 2019 to 2020 season. And then uh, we are going to talk about things that Scott and Griffin agree together about, but disagree with the rest of the world about when it comes to uh, Bible quizzing. There's several things that, you know, we've always been asking you guys uh, peri periodically in these podcasts. We've, we're asking for folks to email us uh, anything that they disagree with us on. Uh, and it turns out, well, Scott and I tend to agree with each other on quite a lot of things. Unfortunately, most things, which means that we're not terribly uh, interesting because we're not disagreeing about all that much. So instead, to liven things up, we will talk about uh, three things that we agree with but disagree with the general quizzing community on. Uh, and maybe we'll change your mind on some of these things. Maybe not. Maybe we'll just get you annoyed with us. But either way, hopefully it'll be interesting. So with that, uh, let's dive into our first item, which is John chapter 20. So Scott, what did you think of uh, chapter 20? Well, 20 and 21 are both kind of, um, they're a nice ending to the book. So 17 is just a crazy, difficult chapter to memorize. And then 18 and 19 are long chapters. They're beasts of chapters. But then chapter 20 is just 31 verses. And how long is chapter 21? Just 25 verses. So they're both shorter there's not a whole lot of key material in John 20, either key verse. There's six key verses out of it, so about a fifth of the chapter. But there's really not a ton of unique words. There's a little bit, a few more unique words at the latter half of the chapter than the first half of the chapter. But I think chapters like this are a good way to end John. They're, they're more bite-sized than a lot of chapters in John. There's a good mix of narrative material and non-narrative material. I see some good... Chapter-only reference questions, like in verse 8, finally what? Um, or verse 11, outside what? And let's see if there's a good... Yeah, there's some good chapter-verse reference questions. In verse 17, do not what? I am what? And then, um, yeah, it's just a good mix of question types, material types, and there's kind of something for everyone, regardless of the type, the amount of material you know as a quizzer or the question types are your favorite or your least favorite. Yeah, I totally agree. I think the, the the couple of things that sort of struck me is how average uh, 20 and 21 are in terms of sort of their makeup, their feel, their pacing, the length of the verses, the scattering of unique words, uh, either chapter unique or, uh, or, or, or holistic material unique. Uh, it, it, it sort of feel, felt like a great, like you said, a great way to end. And I, I I'm uh, spe uh, especially 
uh, pleased. I, I don't know. I love all verses, but you, you have your favorites. And 2125 is one of my favorites where, uh, you know, John at the end says, okay, I'm done, but uh, there's actually so much more that I didn't write about. Uh, and so much more that if I were to write it, it would, uh, there would be, uh, n not enough room, uh, for, there, there wouldn't be enough room for the books that would be written as a result of, of the things that I could write about. Uh, I, I love the way that that ends John, because I mean, especially when you're talking about the very beginning of John chapter one, how it's this earth shaking theologically, uh, you know, it's, it's this theological bomb that that goes off in, in in how important john chapter one is and then we get to the end and say okay as important as all of this stuff was there is actually so much more that's not written uh and it's uh, just a beautiful way to to end all of the material i'll tell you a story from john chapter 21 um the first year that i qualified for internationals i knew the material very very well and it was john year but i was short on kind of experience and savvy. And so I think for at least the first Quiz Internationals, I didn't win a single jump. And in the second, I believe it was our second prelim, we faced Canadian Midwest, who was always one of the better teams. And I still remember one of their quizzers was named Shay Durston, who was considered to be one of the better multiple answer quizzers. And so he jumped on both reference multiple answers and multiple answers. Well, that was pretty similar to what I was jumping on as well. And I knew that in John 21, verse 2... There's a chapter reference, multiple answer, who are together. And it's the only one in the chapter. So if you hear a chapter reference, multiple answer from John 21, you can jump on just the chapter. And that's what I did in this quiz and beat Shay to the jump and got my first correct question. And it was kind of cool that, I don't know, it showed how my study had paid off. And I was able to get in on um, really on pure study alone, whereas most of the time, you have to have a very precisely timed jump and watch for W's and a lot of a lot of other finer details that I was short on experience and skill in, but I was still able to snag this one. That's really cool. I love I love stories about that where the more study that you put in, the more more detailed study that you put in uh, beyond just memorization. And and I'm not saying I shouldn't use the word just uh, because there's a lot of work that has to go into memorization. But when you take it to the next level, there's so many opportunities that present themselves just like that, where you can sort of um, almost do a quantum leap uh, in terms of uh, speed and preparedness and authority in, in answering. And that's fantastic stuff. Like, it could be that there's some situation question out there in one of the years where there's an about whom and a why and a when. Some crazy combination of questions you can ask on a certain quotation. And a quizzer might have studied and knows this. And if they ever hear that combo, they can jump on basically nothing, right? Just a, a movement of the quizmaster's mouth and nail the question with really zero risk. And that's, that's my favorite is when you can identify these these pockets of question types where if if you study correctly and can then obviously quote them correctly you eliminate almost any risk of getting them wrong which was what i tried to do over and over and over and over again is try to figure out at speed what are going to be my least risky question types and then study to make myself good enough to get them right yeah absolutely there are a couple of things in uh, 21 that are fairly interesting. Uh, in verse 11, there's a number, 153. Uh, large, uh, it was uh, full of large fish, 153. Uh, but even 
with so many the net was not torn. Uh, 153 has always struck me as an extraordinarily specific number uh, for John to be recalling, you know, some number of decades after the event, but uh, it sort of lends itself to the idea that these fish were individually counted after the fact, uh, because otherwise, you know, how would you get to that 153 number? So how do you think Quizmasters should pronounce that, Griffin? 153? Yeah. Versus 153? Versus 153. I don't know that it matters because I don't know that the Quizmaster should ever actually say 153 in a question. Like, like what sort of question could you, could you come up with where 153 was part of the question text? Uh, you could just have a strong desire to have a global unique word be the first word in a question and write 153, but even with so many, what? Yeah, I'm going to call awkward on that. Um, yeah, so I guess for me, I would probably call it, I would probably say 153, uh, although I guess either way, it, it doesn't really matter. Uh, but that's an interesting point, because, right, we, we would accept uh, any pronunciation that's recognizable from a quizzer, but we hold ourselves as quizmasters to a higher standard on pronunciation. Uh, yeah. So that would be kind of interesting. Um, I don't know. What would you, would you do 153 or would you do 153? I probably would lean towards 153 because it is in numeral form where most numbers, or at least a lot that come to mind, like feeding of the 5,000, they are spelled out. And so that's why I would, side towards 153 over 153 for a lot of numbers if they're small then they're going to be there's only really one way to pronounce them you know like 12 or 50 but for these longer ones there could be multiple and i can't i can't think of a numeral in the four digits from quizzing material yeah no i don't think so but i mean why not 153 for that matter i think that would be fine i think that's more awkward than 153 um but I, you could definitely argue that 153 is the clearest and most literal way for Quizmaster to read it. Yeah, uh, I think I'm, I, I sort of go with Solomon here and split the baby and say 153. But um, but yeah, it does seem very awkward. Uh, I don't I don't know that there would be a decent question where it would actually come up. It was full of large uh, fish, 153, but what? Um, or if you wanted to be really cheeky, 153, but what? Uh but I don't know. That just seems that just seems really awkward and weird. While we're grasping for terrible questions, you probably would hate how full of large fish, with the answer being 153. How full of large fish? Because uh... usually you're looking for a word like very or bursting or something like that, and not a specific number. I actually dislike it less than you might think. Um I think how does kind of, I think 153 is the answer. So certainly like very or bursting or whatever. Um, I think 153 is just a, a much more specific answer to that. Um, I just don't like it because the interrogative is split from the, from the answer. Um, but that's sort of a mild annoyance from me, uh, or an, a, a, it's something I find mildly annoying, not terribly annoying. So I don't know. I, I would, I, might even consider that a decent question, actually. I think I just find that sometimes the use of how is the interrogative word makes the question feel less like a quiz question, whereas usually in quiz questions, the what or the who is kind of jarring, and it's like very obvious that it's inserted into the material, whereas using how can feel very much like English, which could be misleading. 
Yeah, very much so. Very much so. Especially at at the beginning, because, I mean, you don't get a lot of how questions in quizzing at all. And especially when you're talking about how as the interrogative, as the opener to the question, it's it's non it's not usual. Yeah. So I can't think of a good like I can't think of a good example. But looking at like burning coals, we would write burning water, what coals? It's interrogative questions. But theoretically, there's a question of that format that we could write how coals, you know, if the first word is, I can't think of what word it would be. But I would almost not write it like that and just use what, because I feel like the jarring nature of it helps quizzers, like helps make it clear to quizzers what's happening. Yeah, totally. All right. Well, should we, uh, anything else on 21 before we move on? Um, nothing really grabs me. I think a lot of times at ends of books, the verses are... The, the verses, especially the key verses, are can be more significant because they're often summing up a whole book or summarizing some main themes. And so it's always nice when quizzers know them word perfect and get them right rather than uh, stumble through them on such significant material. Ah, excellent. <laughs> excellent point. All right. Well, so the Madras meet is coming up. Like I said, in the opener, just a little bit less than two weeks away. It'll be on the 15th and 16th. And of course, we all know that uh, the 17th is the most important day of the year because that is St. Patrick's Day. Uh, so we, this is the uh, pre-St. Patrick's Day quiz meet down in Madras, Oregon. I wanted to remind folks that, uh, you know, allow for a decent amount of time traveling on the roads and the freeways and so forth. There is expected to be a little bit of uh, weather. Uh, So far, the forecast doesn't look too bad. Uh, It looks like it's going to be fairly warm. But if you're traveling over uh, the pass, I forget what it's called, through government camp uh, by, by hood, uh, Mount Hood, just to the south of it, the, you could probably end up getting a little bit of snow flurries or something as you're going through there. Uh, so be careful about that stuff. So far, like I said, I think the forecast is looking promising. But of course, if things take a turn for the worse, we will be on it like a hawk. But hopefully we don't come anywhere close to something that's bad because it would be an utter catastrophe and travesty and great horrible thing if we had to cancel two district meets in a row um that would just be awful uh like none other so hopefully everything just works out just fine this is the last regular district meet of the year uh so we normally have five number four got canceled so this is number five but the fourth one that we've done uh and there are some uh some statistical implications so scott can you kind of walk us through what those are so this this meet five has a 25% weight for individual averages, and the three meets that we've completed thus far total to, to a 20% weight. So this one meet counts more than all the meets that we've done so far this year, which means there is great opportunity for quizzers to move up in the standings. So for example, if you're behind someone in by 10 average points so far this year, which probably feels like a lot, if you get a 50 and they get a 20, I mean, if, if you get a 50 and they get a 30 at, at meet five, you will pass them. Um, and so there's a lot of possibility for people moving around in the standings. And there's also the team qualification for district championships. I don't quite remember the, the exact weight for teams, but I know that the weight for meet five is more than the weight for meet three. And those are the only meets that are going to count for teams this year because we canceled meet four. And so likewise with teams, you have a great opportunity to move around, even if you are not currently in the top 15. 
And a reminder, reminder that we are taking the top 15 teams to district championships this year. It has been 18 for a while, but we're kind of resetting that down to 15 as the um, as the 18 number was originally arrived at because it was less than half of the teams. The district was between 38 and 45 teams at that time. And so we wanted to make it closer to that now. So 15 is still more than half the teams, but it's it's closer to, to, the, to the ratio that it once was. Yep. And so at the end of Meet 5, we will be announcing the, the quizzers that make Great West and the teams that make district championships. So it's going to be an extended awards time, and it's a cool thing because a bunch of people see kind of some very obvious culminations of their work so far this year. Yeah, very exciting. So uh, we're going to have, at the end of the meet, we're going to be doing a couple of things in the Madras meet that we don't normally do. We're going to be uh, you know, going through the announcements of the folks who have qualified for Great West. Uh, so during the championship quiz itself of the, of the meet, Scott will be uh, feverishly uh, typing away in Excel and doing various math calculations and so forth and figuring out who are all the folks who get to go to Great West? And that will be announced one by one, and that'll be exciting. And I'm assuming we're doing the same sort of thing where we're going to call each person by name and have them come up on stage as we go through. Is that sort of the plan? Absolutely. So we'll first um, talk about some info for the meet and then talk about the adults from PNW that are going. So we'll have probably five coaches and three officials, and then we'll go through the quizzers, one through 20. And one thing that I like to do is, it occasionally happens where there's a quizzer in the top 20 who is not able to go to Great West, but I like announcing them just the same because they are in the top 20 for the year at this point. And then we just um, go on and announce 21st or 22nd, however many we need to. So I like, I don't skip over the any kids that aren't going to Great West. Yeah, that's fantastic. And so it's great to see, uh, it's great to see at the end of the meet, all of those quizzers uh, standing up on the stage to say, yep, these are the folks that are going to be representing uh, P&W at Great West. And it's great to cheer them on and kind of send them off in style. And then the other thing that we're going to do at this meet, since it is the last regular uh, district meet of the season. Uh, we're also going to be recognizing and honoring our departing seniors, uh, those folks who have basically the quiz their last year as a quizzer and, and are going to be moving on to uh, uh, bigger and grander things in their life. But hopefully we can also make an impassioned plea to all of these seniors that if they're anywhere near the Pacific Northwest, that they continue to participate in uh, quizzing in some capacity, uh, either helping out in their local church, um, coaching a team, or you know, becoming an official in some capacity. We're always in need of scorekeepers, always looking to add to our quizmaster ranks, and so on. Uh, so it's, I would love to be able to uh, keep those seniors engaged if they're able to. I mean, some seniors are going to be moving to, you know, different parts of the country and so forth, and. Um, yeah, it, as many pe folks that we can keep involved, that would be great because I think those are really some of the strongest people and strongest advocates that we can have for quizzing are the folks who have just recently gone through it. Definitely. it's We love to have the recently graduated uh, come back to the program and keep helping out. We've, I mean, if you look, we have two, no, half of our quiz masters are that way, um, a third to a half of our, our scorekeepers, and then We've got a bunch of coaches that are within five years of graduating. So um, it's very helpful and very needed to keep the program going. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, so with Great West on the horizon, so Scott, you're kind of working on some study materials, right? Yep. So an expanded keyverse list has gone out to all the program leaders about a month ago or so. So that is there for any quizzers who specialize in keyverses to take a look at if they want to increase their chances of scoring well at Great West. And at the Great West practice, which is going to happen on March 30th, we will be using a question set that is off of the expanded keyverse list. So there will be keyverse questions from non-PNW keyverses. And I do that so that it is as realistic an approximation of Great West as we can get. So I want quizzers to have experience with the non-PNW keyverses however they want to deal with it, right? Some quizzers decide to jump slower. Some quizzers decide to jump at the same speed and just take their lumps. Some quizzers decide to memorize a handful of the other expanded key verses. So that is what we will be doing at the Great West uh, practice. So that's on Saturday, March 30th, and you're planning to start at 9 o'clock, right? I don't remember the specifics from my email, but um, an email has gone out with details on that. I am speaking slowly so I can look it up. Well, while you do that, um, the other thing to keep in mind is if anybody involved in quizzing who is not going to Great West happens to be in the ABC general area, so this is Covington uh, area, feel free to stop by Alliance Bible Church and say hi on uh, March 30th. It'd be great to see you. So we're going to have, it's going to be 930 to 4, and we will actually be inviting the top 25 quizzers. So if any of the top 20, even though the, the top 20 are the ones going to Great West, if any of the top 25 want to come and practice with us all, please do. Yeah, it would be fantastic. Well, looking forward a little bit, speaking of key verse questions, looking forward a little bit into next year, the 2019-2020 uh, season, I don't believe we've generated a key verse list yet. Uh, normally, we would have that done right around this time frame or within a couple of weeks of this time frame. Um, I figure we're going to be generating that fairly soon, though. It's certainly going to exist before district championships, and it'll be widely circulated uh, along with you know study material for next year before uh, district championships. Although, have we, uh, have we done that in the past? Have we circulated it widely or have we waited until after DC just to sort of say, maybe don't study this yet? Or has there been a tradition behind that? Uh, there has not been as, as we try to do and are going to be doing more and more, we let coaches coach and program leaders program lead. And so we try to, I think we try to get it out before district championships or around district championships. Um, but I think as many coaches do, we encourage quizzers to take some sort of break, even if you're chopping at the bit for next year. Yeah, it's usually a good idea. Even if it's uh even if it's just, you know, maybe memorize a little bit at a slower pace or something, give your brain a break. Uh it's usually a good uh opportunity to recuperate uh and get prepared uh for the next season. And I think it's very important if you want to be really good at quizzing to study consistently, but I don't think that that means sitting down for an hour every day and memorizing or quoting and if you miss a day then you're done. I think, you know, holding yourself to a, a very lax standard some days, say, I'm going to read over material for 10 minutes. But if you make sure you do something each day, I think that's awesome. 
and kind of in the same vein, if you're chomping at the bit after meet five and you're not going to be going to district championships, I, I would say, you know, like don't jump in and start memorizing large chunks, but if you want to read over a keeper's list or read over a chapter or um, things that are kind of low key, but familiarizing yourself with the material in a low, low pressure sort of way, I think that's awesome. Yeah, totally agree. Well, and speaking of things where we agree, but maybe where Scott and I agree, but maybe disagree with the rest of the quizzing world about, um, we want to kind of jump into three areas where Scott and I have uh, generally been in more or less in some sort of agreement on, but maybe we're wrong. Maybe we disagree with sort of the general consensus of the quizzing world. Maybe we disagree with you. So if, you know, if you happen to hear something around here that we're talking about um, and you disagree, we would very much like to hear your arguments uh, to the to the case, um, try to change our minds and so forth. So we're going to be kind of laying out three different areas that kind of fit this model. And uh, if anything kind of strikes you as interesting, we'd very much like to hear from you. Um, please email us at iq at cbqz.org. And with that, we'll go into the first one. So the first of these three ideas is around the idea that says, well, what happens if a quizzer has memorized extremely well, has worked very hard, uh, knows the material inside and out, but gets a question incorrect based on a technicality. So one of these might be uh, somebody jumps on a fairly obscure reference question. Uh, they quote the material correctly uh, and as perfectly as possible. They, they are literally making no mistakes, but because they jumped a little bit early, they are unable to um, uh, get exactly the question that's on my card, let's say, or, or that, that's on Scott's card or something. Uh, and they, they have a choice of two different questions or possibly more from the reference material, and they end up selecting the incorrect question when we query for what's your question. They would, under the current rules, they would be getting that uh, question incorrect uh, based on sort of the way the world views how that should be adjudicated. But Scott had tends to lean more toward the idea of saying, and, and jump in here, Scott, and correct me if I'm stating your position incorrectly, but generally in those contexts, if both questions can satisfy the requirements of the card, you would accept either question. Is that right? Yeah. And the way that we, we being um, Canadian Midwest, Western Canada, and Pacific Northwest have done it at Great West for, it was probably three or four years up until the rule changed last year, was if the quizzer provides a, a reference question of the exact same type and the total information in their question and answer is, is equal to the total information on the Quizmaster's card, then you count them correct. And that worked great because... There are times where a quizzer gives a question that is a little bit different from what's on the card, but if the total information in the question and answer is the same, it shouldn't matter. Um, and we kind of viewed those situations as times when a reference quizzer knows the whole material, jumped on a reference, was able to quote the correct verse, backwards to front, identify um, usually two potential questions, and then has to pick one of them. And in that specific scenario, we didn't want to force them to pick the one that was on the card. Now, there are cases where um, 
one question is a chapter verse reference and one is a chapter reference. And in that scenario, the quizzer does have to pick right because they can legitimately know which one is correct. And that's a test of their knowledge of the material and especially of reference questions and being able to differentiate between chapter references and chapter verse references. But um, the the total information or the sum of information in a question and answer was uh, a difficult concept for a lot of people to uh, grasp and probably probably a good reason why it's why the, the rule ended up being changed, requiring basically re- requiring the quizzer to pretty much get the exact question that's on the card. Um, there's still some gray area, which in my mind means that nothing has really been solved. But um, pretty much the quizzer has to get the verbatim question on the card, which to me will be would be discouraging if I was a reference question quizzer, and might lead me to pick other question types. Which are going to be, which have always been much easier to study for, but now might also be less risky to jump on. Yeah, and I mean, I the, I can see the counter argument to this, uh, the counter argument to say, well, you know, if you're jumping on, say, a quote question and you pre-jump on, uh, say, the, the 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 syllables of the verse number, and you uh, have to make a choice between say uh, six and seven and you pick six and the actual answer was seven, the, uh, the, the result is you're wrong. You know, you, you pre-jumped, uh, even though you could have, uh, you could have quoted six or seven word perfectly. Uh, it doesn't matter. You are still incorrect because you didn't get the reference correct. Um, you know, there, there are situations like that. And certainly, so, you know, taking that and applying it to the reference field, I can sort of see the argument that says, well, you know, if they're going to pre-jump or if they're going to jump at such a speed where someone can say that's a pre-jump rather than a, um, uh, you know, just an early jump. Uh, and as a result of that, get the question incorrect. Somebody could say, well, no, that's just the, the nature of quizzing. They should have given it a few extra syllables. But again, I kind of go back to, I, I agree with Scott here. I, I kind of go back to the arbitrariness of the the way the question might be worded. There's other situations too, where, uh, you know, if I've got a question that starts with the exact same five words or exact same three words, it becomes... Uh, and let's say it goes out for, say, it can read out, say, six words and still not be key enough to be a standard question so it can become a reference. Or it can be answerable enough with a reference, let's say, within three questions. Uh, what is the right question to write on the card? Do you write three, four, five, or six words? And as a quizzer, where do you stop? Uh, if you haven't gotten the whole material out. And that sort of ambiguity there just feels to me to be much more uh, a technicality than anything based on quizzing skill, right? So like the difference between, say, you know, jump on uh, verse 20, uh, uh, chapter 21, or quote, uh, uh, quote John chapter 21, verse, right? And somebody jumps, uh, that to me is a, is a skill-based differentiator, like how you're timing the jump between the six and the seven or something and being able to read exactly where you're going to want to jump. Um, and so to me, that comes down to a, a measure of skill. And the more prepared somebody is, the better they are at, at they're going to be at being able to jump exactly where they need to be to get them the necessary material and, and still be able to uh, win the jump. But to me, some of this reference stuff that we're talking about just feels too, it feels too much like a technicality where you can, 
do everything right and still be incorrect. Um, but I don't know, Scott, what, does that sound reasonable to call it a technicality like that? I think it does. And I think the argument, you know, like, as you said, they can do everything right and still not be correct. Well, someone might say, well, they didn't do everything right. They jumped at a point where they couldn't distinguish it yet. Um, which to me is a very valid argument, right? If you jump at any point before the entire question is done of any type, you are accepting some amount of risk. Um, I just have a hard time, like, like, I mean, basically making the statement, quizzers who are going to memorize more material better than anyone else, we're going to make this more, more difficult and less appealing for you to do so. It just seems like not something we want to do. Um, I think other changes, like increasing quotes and finish the verses, um, like the minimums of question types, well, that's what you're basically saying is, for the verses that require word-perfect knowledge and material, we want more of them. Well, that's just going to increase memorization to a word-perfect degree, which is exactly what we want. But in this reference question scenario, you're saying, well, there's going to be some percentage that you're just going to have to accept a 50-50 risk on. Well, the only reason I memorized reference questions was because if I knew the material rock solid, my risk was zero. If now I have to accept a, a decent amount of risk on an admittedly small number of questions, it's making it strategically a less lucrative question type for me to spend time on. Yeah, totally. So years back, uh, I was telling Scott, uh, well, not years back, several minutes ago, I was telling Scott that years back in time, I had actually written up a set of uh, quizzing rules from scratch that sort of, um, they were more a thought experiment than anything, uh, you know, 16 question quizzes instead of 20, but you can go to A and B's on question one and so forth. And just kind of the, the nature of how the quizzing structure worked was very different, but it was all this thought experiment around what could we do uh, at a theoretical level that might really lend itself to a system that would even more than the system we have now encourage memorization. And one of the things that I came up with was uh, you could call it a technicalities abort switch rule where the idea would would say essentially the, the, the abort switch is if any quizzer can quote the material word perfect with a reference they get the question correct. Um, now, this rule starts to fall apart in practice, I would think. It would start to fall apart in practice at the international level where pretty much everyone who gets a reference can quote every verse word perfect, uh, or at least that's the theory. So this probably doesn't work out well there because you'd have just massive pre-jumps left and right. Uh, at, at internationals, but maybe it's fine. But certainly at a district level, I don't want to see somebody jump who knows the material, who can quote, you know, verses six and seven. Well, that's a bad example, but I, I don't want somebody who can jump and quote the verse word perfectly with a reference to not be able to get the answer correct because of some sort of ambiguity in the question or uh, any sort of other sort of technicality. So, I mean, Scott, what do you think about that? And does that does that seem like a good idea either at the district level or at internationals or neither or both? Um, I think the desire is a good one. And it reminds me of a time at internationals. I think this was 2013, 2014, a while back. And a longtime quiz master was in favor of getting rid of context altogether. And my memory of their reasoning was like, take a, 
Key verse question to finish the verse. If a quizzer jumps on Jesus on the first word and can quote you many verses that start with Jesus, like why are we going to count them wrong if they started in the wrong verse if they eventually get the right one and quote it were perfect? Which I think is a completely valid reasoning, right? If a quizzer is that good to quote that many things um, and get to the correct answer, then why do we care if they said um, either out-of-context stuff or potentially incorrect stuff? Now, I think... He was mainly talking about getting rid of context, but I think context, well, I'm not, I'm not saying that context and incorrect answers are inextricably linked, but there is some overlap there. But I think, as much as I hate to say it, I, I don't want to encourage or basically set up incentives for quizzers to talk as fast as humanly possible. I think there are some of those incentives now, but for the most part, questions are perfectly answerable within 30 questions without rushing. And so while there are some cases where a quizzer knows they're short on time and really rattles off the verse super fast, there's not a ton of cases. And I like quizzing to be as understandable for other quizzers on stage and the audience as possible. And even if putting something in that says, hey, if you can quote the verse correct or multiple verses correct, you're, you're going to be right, um, I think that would help in some places and it would hurt in other places. Yeah, makes sense. Well, let's move on to the second one. Um, you, uh, Scott, do you want to talk about this one a little bit? The idea of, of uh, the notion that every verse can be a key verse? Yeah, so key verses have been kind of an interesting, um, I don't know, thing. And now that I'm looking at the rule book, there's not really, I don't know if the phrase key verse appears in the rule book. Um, so the rule book just talks about finish the verse questions and quote questions, and then the variations of each. Um, and for most districts, these questions apply to a subset of the total material. And in, in some districts, those verses are specifically told to all the quizzers. So PNW is one of those districts. We think that within district quizzing, um, we want to highlight the most spiritually significant verses for the quizzers to memorize. So if they're not going to memorize the entire material, which is the majority of quizzers, then they will pick these first for ideally the maximum spiritual edification possible, right? That's kind of the theory behind it. And so a ton of thought is put into picking these verses. We want it to be a subset of the material. We want it to be a manageable subset. And we want each selection to be of the um, most appropriate key verse question type. So finish the verse, finish this, finish these two verses. Um, You know, finish this if there's non-significant material that starts a verse, like Jesus said to them, that's tailor-made for a finish this, because um, you're not making the quizzer jump on a finish the verse on material that's not really important. Um, You're starting at the meat of the verse. So that, like, those structures should be made finish thises. And likewise, if two verses just work great together, um, they're kind of better together than individually, make them a finish these two verses pair. And so all this thought is put in so that quizzers are studying the most spiritually significant verses and are being asked a specific key verse question type that best fits the structure of the verse. Well, you go to other districts and you find lots of different ideas and ways that they've implemented these questions. Some districts have Club 150, Club 300 verses that those are the bases for either key verse questions or all the questions based on bracket. I don't know if there are any districts that don't communicate any sort of... um, key verse list at all. There might be. But then obviously it meets like Great Western Internationals. There is no communicated key verse list. Now then you wonder, 
is there some list that these questions are written off of, um, but a list that's just not communicated to any of the quizzers? And my assumption is that there always is, but I think increasingly the thought is becoming um, at these kind of all-star meets, most of the quizzers know the whole material, why don't we just ask you verse questions on any verse? So a quizzer should be prepared to answer a quote or finish the verse or other on any verse in the material. And I think that in a theoretical way, that is a, a good thought, right? If we're, we want these quizzers to memorize the whole material and we're testing them on the whole material, why not um, potentially make them quote every verse word perfectly, right? That makes sense to me, except that the rule book specifically has definitions for these questions. And under finish the verse questions, it says must be strong enough to stand on its own without requiring additional verses to explain it, must be of spiritual value to be significant to the chapter. So while not explicitly stated, to me it's clearly implying that not all verses meet these criteria. Um, and so if that's the implication, then a quizzer who's studying for a meet like Great Western Internationals where no list is provided can go out and attempt to make their own list in an attempt to quiz better and have a leg up on their opponents. Well, if you're going to take this implied language and just ignore it and make every verse a finish the verse or a quote, then this quizzer is like off on one path and you're going to be testing them on another path. And I think it's misleading. And so I think at the very least, if you're going to have any verse be eligible for a key verse question, this wording shouldn't be in the rule book at all. Um, that's to me the bare minimum. And then I think there's tremendous value to a key verse list and specifically of the specific types, because even in a world where every verse is a quote or a finish the verse, I think you're still wanting to handpick ones that are maybe a finish this and not a finish the verse or ones that are a finish these two and not a single finish the verse or something like that. And once you're doing sort of that hand picking of the most appropriate type based on the structures of the verse, I think pretty quickly you're realizing that I want a subset of the material to be asked on these keepers questions. And I'm totally fine if at internationals the percentage of the total material is 70%. Whereas in district, most keepers lists are probably in the 20 to 25% range. But I just think all of this is pretty murky. There's totally a different goal in testing a district quizzer than an internationals quizzer. And um, I think it can be misleading for quizzers of like many different districts who do many different things to then be tested at a single meet like Great Western Internationals where likely one or two people have used their own standpoint, opinion, bias, interpretation, whatever word you want to use to create um, the structure of Keeper's questions for that competition. Yeah, certainly. Well, I mean, the other thing in, in creating a Keyverse list in, in, you know, in, in recent memory, when I've created them or worked with others to create them, you are defining certain limitations on a particular type that can be asked based on the material that's there. So, for example, you know, I might say, well, this has to be a finish this in the next question. Uh, because this same material appears in some other place or there's uh, the nature of the material sort of forces you into making those sorts of decisions. And it seems to me without that sort of forethought looking across, it's almost like you have to imagine the possibility of a cross-reference type question to, as you're looking at the material, to make sure that you don't end up writing something that is invalid unless you, by definition, publish a key verse list. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah. And so, for example, within PNW, because we define our key verse list, 
I might have a finish the verse that starts with the same first five words as another verse, but that other verse is not defined as a key verse. So no one within PNW is misled, right? So if they know they jump on these five words, there's only one option for them. Well, in a meet where none of this is communicated and there's no key verse list, then you have to generate these knowing that, right? And so you can't, like, either of those would be invalid as finish the verses under that scenario. So there are, like, that is what you're talking about, right, Griffin? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So there are those things which, even if it's at, say, internationals, behind the scenes, whoever made the key verse list knows that one of these verses that starts with the same first five words um, goes on to be super spiritually significant, and the other one does not. They have to, and even if they would want one to be a finish the verse in a quote, and the other one to be neither, um, they have to know that um, it can only be a quote, you know, a quote only and not a finish the verse, or however they want to um, make those selections, but... Right. Absolutely. Well, and then uh, I guess we can move on to question or or issue philosophy number three. Uh, So another again, another thing that is in the rule book, but is sometimes encouraged to be ignored, I guess, is kind of one way of, of describing it. And that's around the areas of challenging and protesting. And certainly if you've been a longtime listener to this podcast, you know that both Scott and I are very big fans of challenging, uh, maybe not so much protesting, although very happy to hear a good protest if it's, if it's a, a valid protest. But we are very much in favor of challenging. And there's a, um, there's a belief, uh, I've, I've experienced as a quiz master and as a coach and in a few other capacities, the idea that challenging and protesting are actually not sportsmanlike or challenging and protesting aren't really what we should do in a Christian program like quizzing. We should just accept the rules, uh, the rulings from, from the quiz master and move on. Um, but I am, I'm very much against this idea because uh, on a number of fronts, uh, there's the philosophical point of just saying, uh, the, the quiz master is not the almighty. The quiz master is not infallible. Uh, the quiz master is absolutely, or the answer judge. If you have an answer judge who's making these rulings, uh, these are human beings and they're going to make mistakes. Uh, and I think that the challenge and ultimately even the protest are available in the rule book to provide the opportunity to ensure more accuracy uh, in uh, in the program. Now, we're not we're not at perfect accuracy, uh, certainly, unfortunately, but it, we certainly get a lot closer to uh, perfect accuracy with the challenging and protesting in there as a counterbalance against uh, the, the quiz master. And this, of course, is assuming that the quiz master and the answer judge are operating with the best of intentions and trying to be as fair and impartial as possible. They can still make mistakes, uh, and they can make mistakes that can throw a quiz one direction or another, uh, you know, unintentionally. But certainly you want to be able to have the opportunity to respectfully and politely be able to say, you know, I, I, I'd like to challenge or may I challenge and, and walk it through and, uh, you know, have the opportunity to appeal uh, a decision. So I, I had mentioned back with, you know, when we were talking about the technicalities of board switch, how I had I had written that into a theoretical thought experiment rule book from, you know, a couple of decades ago. I actually, in my uh, rules that I had written up, I didn't use the word challenge because I thought that was too confrontary. So I said appeal instead, that uh, if if you disagreed with a ruling from a quiz master, you as a coach, or sorry, not as a coach, as a captain, could appeal that decision 
uh, back to the quiz master and see if they would change their mind, that sort of thing. And the appeals process was part of it. So it sort of um, kind of softened the language a little bit. But effectively, it's exactly the same thing, uh, where you're basically providing an opportunity to be more accurate. And the thing is, I think quizmasters who get into being quizmasters who are doing it because they want to be the grand poobah they want to be seen as the the guy or the gal who knows the most in the room i think that's the wrong attitude it's the wrong motivation uh for getting into this program as an official the the goal really is to encourage uh quizzers to memorize the most material possible and i think we do that by having a fair and as close to as accurate a program as possible. And I think the program becomes more fair and more accurate with challenging than without. Uh, so Scott, what do you think? I absolutely agree. And I'm going to bring up a tangential topic to hopefully illustrate some thoughts around this. So there have been years where I was the one generating the question sets for Great West. And then the last few years, there's been someone at Western Canada generating question sets for Great West. And in both cases, we took extreme care to have um, kind of sealed and secured question sets throughout the meet. And I, I think that that's very important, not because any of the districts think that any quizzer is, is either being shown or trying to see upcoming quiz questions, but it's because then everyone has this just general level of comfortability and never gives it a second thought because they've witnessed the care being taken to secure the question sets, if that makes sense. And so I think that there's something similar when it comes to challenges and protests. Um, there's probably, I don't know if half the challenges and protests are ones that, let's say there's some um, perfect knowledge of which ones should and should not be accepted. Let's say that half of challenges and protests hypothetically should be accepted. Um, I don't, I mean, I think it, it's not as important that the, right, right, that the end result is the absolute correct one every time. But I think when officials are treating all challenges and protests with the same amount of gravity and respect and importance, it provides all of the competitors that same level of comfortability with a structure that is being presented to them. Um, and so that's, that's why, like, I mean, there are times that I've had poor challenges, either in content or in um, motivation, but I don't think it's my place to criticize a challenge openly just because I know it's poor motivation. And so I treat all of them with the same level of respect because it makes everyone very comfortable that the rules matter, that fairness matters, that their viewpoint is going to be considered. Um, and I think it just creates a, a really, really healthy competition. But then I think while in some, um, there are some positions where it's obvious that people love to be in charge with authority, be venerated, what have you. I think the most foremost example that comes to mind is recreational umpires and referees and officials um, for, like, recreational sports. It seems again and again umpires and referees just want to t make sure everyone knows who's boss. I, I really have not witnessed that sort of motivation among any official in quizzing. Um, where they want everyone to know that they're in charge. But what I have witnessed is people who don't want to consider or don't want don't want to consider that they might have made a wrong decision because it doesn't make them feel good about probably making a wrong having made a wrong decision. Um, and that's something I think you kind of just need to get over for the sake of the quizzers. 
Because if you're not wanting to consider a challenge because you don't want to feel incorrect, then that's just being selfish and it's being detrimental to the quizzers. Yeah, totally agree. I mean, we're in it not to be, we're in it not to be perfect. We're in it to do as good of a job as we can. Uh, and the way we do a good, as good of a job as we can is to allow for correction. Uh, I've, I've always found that very fascinating. And maybe there's a corollary. I mean, you know, we have no scientific data behind this at all, but I mean, it would, it would be interesting if there was some sort of psychological corollary between, uh, say, somebody who was a poor quiz master from the position of, say, be, say, you know, being open to challenges and the same sort of idea of saying somebody who was personally non-receptive to constructive criticism. The thing is, we become better when we are criticized. Um, I mean, certainly there's negative criticism, uh, neg- not negative in the sense. I mean, there's criticism that's that's meant poorly or it, it's it, it's it tears people down. But there's then there's criticism that is meant to be constructive and should be taken as constructive. And the thing is, I think challenging and protesting can be done with very nasty attitudes. Uh, certainly protesting. Um, I've I've seen a you know, the vast majority of challenging that I've experienced has been done with the right attitude. I think maybe I, I, and I can't even really remember a specific example, but maybe there was, there was one or two examples at some point over the last 20 years where it's kind of like, okay, yeah, that, that challenge was maybe a little bit on the disrespectful side, but the vast majority have been respectful. Uh, Certainly protesting I've, I've experienced, unfortunately, where protests tend to get I don't know exactly why. Maybe adults are more children than we like to admit to ourselves. But, uh, you know, protesting can be a little bit more nasty, unfortunately. But the thing is, just because challenging and protesting can be done in an, an unsportsmanlike uh, attitude doesn't mean that challenging and protesting are themselves unsportsmanlike. Uh, it just, inc- it, it, it's, it's a, if anything, it's an indicator to say that these are simply tools of quizzing and we can use them both for positive things and for negative things. Very similarly, the competitive attitude. There was um, somebody who was arguing a few years ago that we should do away with competition and do much more of a, you know, everybody wins, you know, sort of approach with quizzing, uh, that competition itself was somehow unchristian. Uh, and, uh, I of course disagreed. I think the competition is what makes quizzing quizzing. It's the thing that motivates the memorization more than almost anything else. Uh, but, um, the, the thing is there can be negative traits of competition, right? If you've got, uh, say a team that's out there to destroy the other teams, they're, they're walking onto the platform with very bad attitudes. That's not a good thing. We want to, you know, change that sort of attitude in quizzing. But the thing is, the reality is in the quizzing I've experienced at all levels, you know, district, uh, great West internationals outside of CMA quizzing in world and, and assemblies and other programs every time in Nazarene programs, every time I have witnessed a positive, encouraging sort of atmosphere. You'll see three teams up there on the platform competing against each other, but every one of the teams there wants the other teams to do well. Now they want to do better <laughs> than the other teams, but they, they, but they want all of the teams to do well. Uh, and they, and there's a, a genuine encouragement that happens uh, across teams and between quizzers. And that's a really positive thing. Uh, the competition could be taken a wrong way, but it's not. It's a very positive thing. And I think very similarly, 
challenging and protesting can be a very positive thing if we let it. Sure. Now, they, I mean, it's one of my biggest pet peeves in Bible quizzing is there's these cases of something that um, in the context of quizzing could be negative, right? It's worse to make an error than get a question right, um, for example. But there will there will be times where someone will just make an offhand comment like, um, I don't think we should be challenging because we're all Christian. And, that, and I never know how to respond because I never know what sort of thought process led you to that thing. But there's definitely the thought, you know, there's thoughts similar to that about things in Bible quizzing like challenging. And it, it baffles me because I don't know if there really was a thought process behind the comment. Yeah, yeah, certainly. And well, I think I think also um, a big reason why quiz masters are resistant to challenges and protests is the vast majority of, of the time they arise because someone was counted in counted correct by the quiz master, and the challenge is wishing to have them be counted incorrect, which is an uncomfortable thing to do. Take away points that you have granted to a quizzer, um, and I I definitely see quiz masters fall victim to not wanting to do something uncomfortable. Um, where they'll throw out a question instead of um, make a tough decision. Um, and I think you're in this role to make a tough decision um, to the best of your ability and not to take the easy way out. Yeah, absolutely agreed. Well, and with that, we are at the conclusion of our show, episode 34, ready to go into the archive and get published. But before we do that final step, I wanted to remind everybody, please email us if you disagree with any of the the philosophies and rules and so forth that uh, Scott and I walked through. Uh, or if you have any sort of supporting ideas or anything else that you'd like to share, please email us at iq at cbqz.org. Also, if you have any questions about quizzing uh, in terms of, you know, how best to study, how, uh, you know, any specific rulings that you've encountered that you're kind of like, eh, I'm not really sure how that worked out. Or if you'd like to see changes to the rule book, uh, we'd very much like to hear from you. So email us at iq at cbqz.org. And follow us on Twitter at Inside Quizzing. And with that, I will say thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening. And thanks, Scott. Thanks, everyone. Have a good night.